This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. Here in the United States, the holiday season really kicks off in earnest this week with Thanksgiving in just a couple of days, and schedules just traditionally sort of get uh, a lot more hectic and unpredictable at this time of year than at any other time, and that is certainly the case for myself. I will have some new interviews for you soon, but in the meantime, I want you to enjoy this podcast interview that I did with Jeff Charlotte as part of the first season of Powers and Principalities. Jeff Charlotte is the author of The Family, which is a book about a secretive far-right Christian organization that runs the uh, annual prayer breakfast in the in Washington, D.C. It was also turned into a documentary series on Netflix. We talked in November 2020, just after the election had been called for President-elect Biden, uh, but at that time, Trump had not conceded the election, and what we did not know when we talked was that he would never concede the election, and that it would lead to a violent insurrection on January 6th, and the big lie that has been perpetuated ever since. And given what we've seen in the last year, this conversation and this conversations that I had on the first season of Powers and Principalities that you can find in this feed as well as in its own, is that these conversations and these areas of interest are of even more importance now than they were when I was recording these interviews. That's unfortunate, but that is the reality that we're living in. So I wanted to share this and republish it into the feed so that we could uh, resurface some of these conversations because they are of increasing importance and relevance in a world where democracy itself is is at risk here in, in the States. And part of that is from Christian nationalists who... Uh, who will do what they must in order to uh, maintain power. So please enjoy this conversation, uh, if enjoy is the right word. I will be back with some other interviews later this year. All right, everybody have a good holiday. Talk to you soon. All right, let's get right into it. My guest today is Jeff Charlotte, professor of English at Dartmouth College, as well as the author of several books, including The Family, which was turned into a documentary series by Netflix in 2019. His most recent book is This Brilliant Darkness, a book of strangers, and he also regularly publishes about the Christian right and Trumpism for Vanity Fair. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, Blake. Good to be with you. Thank you for joining me. In these last couple of episodes for this season, which is focused on Christian nationalism, my hope is really to provide a retrospective for this election season, as well as what we've learned about Christian nationalism during the pressure cooker that's been the Trump administration here in the United States. But before we get into specifics about that, how are you feeling about the last couple of weeks or so since Biden won decisively in both the Electoral College as well as the popular vote 
And in particular, I'm curious about your thoughts on the GOP's response, as well as the response from Trump's followers. Well, if I had to bet money on whether or not Trump will leave office, I, I would bet that he will, but I would mm-hmm. not bet very much. Um, I, I, I remain quite concerned. Um, I, I believe that the correct term for what we're witnessing is a coup. It's mm-hmm. a slow motion coup. Uh, I'm not at all persuaded by the objections that, well, the military is not involved. Violence is involved. Uh, seizure of power, illegal seizure of power is involved. Um, whether it's going to be successful, I don't know. Um, I don't think it will be. Um, but I think, how am I feeling? Well, I'm feeling terrible. There's a coup. There's a coup. That hasn't happened in the United States in my lifetime. There's been elections that I thought were unfair, but there hasn't been anything like this. And what we've seen uh, from the GOP um, is not just acquiescence, but embrace of full authoritarianism. I'm also not persuaded by those arguments that say, well, it's just a practical matter and so on. Um, There is no such thing as practical fascism. Mm -hmm. This is the real deal. And it's very frightening, whatever happens ahead. Right. A lot of those excuses seem to be centered around this idea that it's to gin up support for the Georgia runoff elections. Um, But you're not convinced by those particular arguments. I I, I don't care if it is. I mean, you know, a coup is a crime. If I I go and I commit a crime and I say, well, uh, um, yeah, I robbed the bank. But it was only because uh, I was, you know, trying to start a record label. Mm-hmm. The judge said, the judge doesn't care. Um, uh, no. Um, and that this is their idea to gin up, you gin up support for uh, the Georgia runoffs by embracing fascism. Mm-hmm. You're saying, vote for the fascists. And we'll prove it to you. We will demonstrate fascism right now. You're someone who's been covering the Christian right in in various ways for over a decade now, um, even going further back than that. That is illustrated in your in your book as well as the documentary series, The Family. In your time, sort of examining and investigating that type of uh, organization and what it represents in the way that Christian nationalism relates to American governance. How did we get from that type of involvement in American politics from the Christian right to where we are now and what we see within Trumpism? Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. And, and, you know, I should preface it by saying, because I was just using the F word, fascism. In my book, there's a chapter called The F Word About Fascism, in which I argue um, that fascism, I didn't think then when I wrote that in 2008, uh, was possible in the United States, not on the full scale. Obviously, there's been fascistic movements and fascistic moments and people subjected to great oppression, but I didn't think fascism as the political ideology. Uh, uh, and I follow the historian Robert Paxton's uh, definition in his book, Anatomy of Fascism. I didn't think that was possible. And the reason I didn't think it was possible was because of fundamentalism. I said, in the United States, fundamentalism is too strong. And fundamentalism brings with it too two factors that, would, that I thought, and I was mistaken, I thought would prevent fascism. Um, you have to forgive me, there's a fly buzzing around. I, I feel like I'm going to name the fly Mike Pence. Um, <laughs> but uh, and one is Jesus. I said, look, you know, you're never going to get that quite that cult of personality because uh, the sort of central figure of Jesus is too strong in American evangelicalism. And two, fundamentalism brings with it as much as it does an authoritarian tradition, also a democratic tradition. When we look back at William Jennings Bryan, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, famous for the 1925 Scopes monkey trial, uh, the anti-evolution trial. Uh, Bryan was uh, a small D Democrat in the truest sense. Um, uh, he was, you know, he was a populist before that. Um, that, dem- that democratic sentiment is demonstrated also and the endless sort of schisming within fundamentalism. So I thought sure. these two pieces would prevent us from reaching fascism. I was wrong. Uh, I was wrong and I should have known I was wrong because what I was exploring in the family, the oldest and uh, arguably most influential Christian nationalist uh, organization in Washington, going all the way back to 1935, mm-hmm. the founder um, 
experienced what he believed was direct communication from God, telling him that Christianity had been getting it wrong for, you know, just short of 2,000 years by focusing on the poor and the down and out, that what God really cared about uh, are those that this organization came to call the up and out, the key men, influential figures in politics, business, and military. And that's who they made their mission field over the decades. Uh, in the United States, um, they definitely favored the right wing of the spectrum. Uh, they favored a, a kind of an authoritarian approach, but they respected democratic norms. As that movement became an international movement, um, uh, they embraced fascism abroad. So here's an organization that after World War II proactively went out and recruited former Nazi war criminals. Um, and yet they still weren't quite fascistic. Um, At they, home. Nazis, they said, yes, you said, said you know, uh, uh, switch out uh, the Fuhrer for the father. Um, uh, in uh, a lot of the sort of developing nations where they ended up having great political influence, for instance, Indonesia, they supported Suharto's fascistic movement, which committed genocide, uh, killing some million Indonesian citizens. They never brought that strongman approach home until Trump, um, whom they embraced. Uh, and uh, so I think what we saw how did this come? I've been thinking a lot about this. We have the Christian right. We have the prosperity gospel. We have the transaction of Trumpist style populism, uh, the transaction, the deal that he makes with Mike Pence to bring the Christian right over. Um, and we see all those things merging in Trumpism. What makes Trumpism potent and unusual in American history is convergent of, convergence of a lot of different right-wing strands that didn't necessarily get along. So when we have, I mean, you know better than most, when we have the sort of the evangelical Christian right, um, the Washington, you know, the Family Research Council, and then you have figures like Paula White, they're not in the same camp. Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican from Iowa, a staunch Trump supporter now, um, longtime member of the family. Um, uh, it was Chuck Grassley who some years ago instigated an investigation against Paula White, Kenneth Copeland. Right those prosperity gospel hucksters. And now here they all are on the same page. And not all are they all on the same page. It's not just sort of we're a big tent. They're becoming unified and becoming something other than what they were before. I think Christian nationalism in the transaction that it made with Trump, it's been transformed by Trumpism. Yeah, could you explore that? Because that's actually a part of one of your essays about visiting a Trump rally this year in 2020 amidst a pandemic, you write, as Trump knows, the best kind of deal, the kind that pays is not only transactional, it's transformative. Could you elaborate on what you mean by that and and, and how Trumpism in particular has transformed? And I mean, there are lots of people, including people who I've had on the show who have advocated that Trumpism is is the culmination. It's not an aberration. And I think that's correct. But nonetheless, as you say, there is an element of Trump becoming a catalyst for these people. So how did Trump as a figure and just in what he's enabled, how has that become transformative for these disparate people like Paula White and, and Chuck Grassley and others? Well, you know, I, in 2016, I traveled the country uh, attending Trump rallies for the New York Times magazine. And I was interested in looking at the rally and, and trying to understand, is there any kind of religious ritual going on here? And very quickly, I knew I had a story uh, because every Trump rally was opened by a preacher. And I'd look at my colleagues, uh, more, more traditional political journalists, and you know they'd be looking at their phone. They're ignoring the preacher. They didn't think that was important. Um, uh, and yet the preacher was performing this multiple functions for the crowd then. It was usually a black or Latino preacher, um, sort of uh, in the mind of the crowd, inoculated this mostly white crowd against charges of racism, um, the crowd would be a mix of the very pious and the people who never went to church. But even the people who never went to church loved the idea of Christian nationalism, which is not unique to Trumpism. Putin uses the same formula. Mm -hmm. uh, supporters love the Russian Orthodox Church, even though only something like 5% or some tiny number actually attended. Um, but what these preachers were preaching was straight up prosperity gospel. Um, I remember one black preacher, uh, telling the crowd that they weren't racist. He couldn't see that they were white. 
he wasn't black. He said the only color that mattered was green money. Mm. And, um, and then Donald Trump had a lot of it and he wanted you to have some of it too. And then God wanted, I mean, we recognize this as very standard kind of snake oil prosperity gospel. Um, and that was the pitch. That was the pitch. Um, uh, there was all kinds of racism active in that pitch, but there was also just saying, hey, you know what? Um, we'll make you rich. Yeah. Um, that changed, right? That changed. Um, that was partly because at that time, Trump could not draw the A-lister Christian right figures. Ted Cruz had Marco Rubio had some of them. Uh, Trump had, well, Paula White, who may have had a big ministry, but she was not an A-list Christian right political figure. Right. Lance Palmer, who's he? Um, you know, uh, even Robert Jeffries, not a major figure in, in terms of Christian right politics before this. Um, Trump had the insight. He knew all he needed was pastors laying hands on him and that most voters, they can't tell Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council apart from Lance Walnow, D-list management cons or, or inspirational speaker and Christian right uh, writer. Um, it's a preacher. Once he comes into power, the rest of the Christian right fell in line. But the prosperity gospel suddenly doesn't work as well because now you are the power. This isn't, um, this is not, hey, let's take power and we'll get rich. We are the power. Where are the riches? How come we're not getting rich? Well, it's because we have enemies. We have secret enemies. And what I argue in, in the Vanity Fair piece is that the transformation between what I saw at those rallies in 2016 and what I saw in the fall of 2019, traveling the country again, looking at the rallies, uh, was from the prosperity gospel to the Gnostic gospel, to that ancient Christian heresy uh, that claims a, a kind of secret knowledge um, uh, uh, that only the initiates have, that looks at uh, official church structures as laced with, with enemies, um, waterless canals, they call them. Um, that says that beyond what we think of as God is an even truer divine, the depth. Um, and, and, and it's filled, it's a conspiratorial mindset. Um, and some listeners might be thinking, oh, I know the Gnostic Gospels. I read Elaine Pagel's wonderful best-selling book and so on. Isn't the Gnostic Gospels more friendly to, um, isn't it kind of feminist and so on? No, it's not. <laughs> uh, there's a modern kind of new age ad adaptation of it that is. The Gnostic Gospels, uh, even though it had a feminine aspect of the divine, was certainly not feminist. Um, uh, and the American Gnosticism of Trump is dark and it, it it draws out the prosperity gospel the christian right and it's drawing also on um what i think some of your your listeners probably remember that that bestseller that that christian nationalist bestseller i think it was called wild at heart by john eldridge oh yeah i mean that had a major impact on it sort of was the brother or sister tome to things like i kiss dating goodbye like it was a sense of masculinity it was this thing that really held up as a like a banner holder for a particular type of complementarianism of gender understanding of gender roles and uh, of this like valorous type of manliness for sure yeah mm -hmm. exactly and, and, and a um and it's kind of warrior manliness um you know in the book uh eldridge at, at one point calls for uh, wives to gift their husbands with broadswords like brave hearts um, to restore their masculine authority. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it, it's it, it's so sort of Beavis and Butthead that uh, you know, they meant it earnestly. And and you know, you would see. I remember Family Research Council Tony Perkins uh, interviewing him there, and there's his sword in the background. I remember various uh, congressional offices around that time, Christian right politicians with swords in their office. Um, I think Eldridge renounced it, as I remember reading after. Um, one of his followers used his sword uh, and killed somebody. But that idea, I mean, the, the, what's drawing forth is, you know, I think if you look at Christian nationalism pre-Trump, it's still holding on, even though it has all kinds of violent rhetoric, it's still holding on to this idea of a love ethic, right? 
it's love as a fist, but it's calling it love. But it's not even calling it love anymore. It's, now we see Christian nationalism embracing God's chaos candidate, uh, as, as Trump is sometimes called, um, embracing an idea of violence right. as Christian principle. One of the things that I was sort of struck by in your recounting of some of these rallies is something that I thought was sort of a juxtaposition of this idea that I think is valid, that much of support for Trump and Trumpism and everything that's tied up in that is not necessarily tied as much to a particular type of belief as it is to rooted in someone's identity. Maybe they're being activated like something relative to say they're if they have a grievance, like a white grievance or the Christian nationalism that, that he espouses appeals to them. Um, they don't necessarily are not overly concerned about his policy views or anything like that. It's the identity. But what I see in some of the people that you interview at the rally is that there is an element of very particular belief that is at work as well. And I think that leads to things like QAnon, but even without getting to the development of QAnon, how does this sort of belief in these types of rituals that you saw at play at these rallies affect Trump's base and the sorts of things that they're willing to to stand for? Well, and you know, in that sort of that, that embrace of of a violent Christian ethic, I think what we see is you take the metaphor of spiritual war. And I want to be respectful of that metaphor in the same way that uh, I, 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 I hate it when Islamophobes uh, describe jihad as, as war on the West, when for most Muslims, jihad describes an internal spiritual struggle. And I understand that uh, for many, many Christians, spiritual war refers to that too. I don't love the metaphor, but there it is. Um, but you take the concretization of that metaphor, that metaphor becoming solid in the world, right? Uh, and the powers and principalities are not an abstract. It doesn't represent your temptation towards sin. It's a person, Hillary Clinton, John Podesta, Joe Biden, uh, AOC. These are actual demons in the world and you are called a spiritual war against them. They're evil, you're good. Their evil is complete which makes your goodness very strong. And anything, you're kind of licensed to do anything when confronted with that evil. Um, and there's some ways in which I look at it and it, it's almost as if Trumpism has channeled uh, the right edge of anti-reproductive rights activism. Um, uh, you know, the folks who, who, who thought that abortion so evil, so that killing an abortion provider is justified. Um, that was still sort of a small constituency. Um, and I think Trumpism has made that idea of, by, of sort of by any means necessary, central to its premise, and not just by any means necessary, it goes straight to, you know what the means that are necessary? Eradication. Um, you know, I just, the news today, I don't know if you saw, um, someone tapped into the, uh, the chat logs of a right-wing group called Oath Keepers, ostensibly secular, deeply Christian nationalist in spirit. Um, and uh, so far, it's all just talk, and let's hope it remains that. But they've now moved on to this idea that what really needs to happen right now are um, summary executions of journalists live on TV, um, break into CNN and kill uh, you know, a, a journalist on TV to demonstrate to the people what's really at stake. I hadn't seen that. That's yeah. terrible. It's terrifying. it's terrifying. That's just so hard. I'm sorry. You have to at least acknowledge that that's a difficult thing to, to reckon with. Your writing also includes another item from the rally. I do want to talk about one other anecdote that you include there, which is you, you quote like a former youth pastor who started basically following Trump rallies like a, like a deadhead would follow the Grateful Dead. And that same pastor said that Trump's tweets are basically akin to scripture. Yeah. What led them to think that way relative to, you know, the same group that wants to say all lives matter, also say Trump's tweets matter. 
which is just mind-boggling. But how did they get to that point? Well, Blake, you don't think that your tweets are scripture? Um, (laughs) The book of Jeff's procrastination on his phone when he should be doing something else. Right. Uh, yeah, this is a this is a, a movement that uh, I encountered at several rallies. Uh, they travel uh, they traveled with the rallies uh, called Trump Tweets Matter, black T shirt in the style of Black Lives Matter, but says in big white letters Trump Tweets Matters, and they get there uh, a day early and camp out and pass out their T shirts and so on. Um, uh, one of the rallies I went to, they got a shout out from the stage from Trump's campaign manager, um, and it's a really strange story actually. Um, uh, it began with one guy, and, and as the youth pastor told me, he says, well, it began, he found eight boys in the woods in Kentucky. And, and you're like, what? <laughs> what? What do you mean? <laughs> Were they boxcar children? I mean, what's the situation? And he took these boys and he started traveling the country with them. And I'm like, this, I mean, I don't really believe in QAnon's grand child kidnapping conspiracy, but that sounds like that's it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I remember asking, I was like, do they have chaperones? Um, and he says, yeah, I think so. Um, oh, man. Uh, this story is a little more complicated. Uh, uh, there are eight kids that, that, that travel around with them, with their parents' permission. Um, and they try and expand this movement with this idea that um, uh, they're only the most sort of concise statement of this belief is fairly widespread. Um, that every error you see in a Trump tweet, every weird capitalization and so on, it's all deliberate. Um, as QAnon followers, Anons like to say, uh, Trump is playing five-dimensional chess, although I've noticed that since he lost the election, um, those who are willing to contend with that as a reality have decided that he's actually playing six-dimensional chess. Huh, oh, well, got to add a dimension. Start, you know, <laughs> um, uh, and, and that you should study these tweets, and that and, and that he's communicating with his tweets, and he tells us this. Right? Trump, Trump often says, "I use Twitter because uh, I'm censored by mainstream media." Right? So they say they believe this is the only way he can communicate with us. Um, and uh, some of these folks are QAnon followers; some are not. Um, also, at Trump rallies, I didn't include in that story um, the Trump rallies I attended. There was folks hawking out in the parking lot, hawking leather-bound, gold-embossed, collected editions of Trump's tweets. And they didn't mean this as a novelty gift or an uh, ironic thing. They thought, here's a book that you could really study. Um, And, uh, you know, that would speak to all aspects of life, which is funny because, of course, that's a, you know, a lefty meme. There's a a tweet for that. Every... every (laughs) Trump attacks someone we find, we go back in, in time and find him saying just the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but that idea, and, and there would be debate. Some would say Trump knows what he's doing. Some would say God is just speaking through Trump. You know, the same way is, uh, is Trump divi- himself divine? Is he a chosen one? Or is he more like a King Cyrus figure, um, a, a non-believer being used as a tool? Uh, by God. Um, And what's fascinating about the Christian nationalism that that surrounds Trumpism is I think outside the movement, we see it as very lockstep and because the effects of it are lockstep. Within the movement, people experience it as very tolerant. So for instance, Blake, you might believe um, that um, John Kennedy Jr., JFK Jr. is alive and working with Trump. I don't believe that. I think uh, Trump is coming up with a plan to purge all the cannibals on his own. We can agree to disagree. And they, they see this as a sort of great blossoming of ideas. Um, the ideas are conspiratorial notions uh, embedded in those tweets. Um, but the experience is something within it uh, that is very much... Um, like, uh, well, I imagine many of your listeners are, are, have, have, are, have experience with, with Bible study. And if you've ever been in a Bible study work, the connections just seem to be popping and you're seeing so much. Right. Getting insight. Um, that's their experience. Mm. 
1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. If you could, I'd love to elaborate more on the role of QAnon and how that has woven its way into Trumpism overall over the last few years. It seems to be probably just for like the regular regular citizen who's not just devouring news about this or or covering it as a journalist in in some aspect we we sort of learn about QAnon's influence either through piecemeal types of things and and the, the most outrageous sort of thing and also more tragically when someone that they know becomes susceptible to those types of ideas you know one of the primary vectors is facebook facebook groups that sort of thing um, as well as other elements of social media. But how has QAnon and this this mysterious figure of Q, who some people are, are speculating even over the last couple of days to the identity of the person posting as Q, and even everything around that, how has that influenced and continued to sort of reify support for Trump and his agenda and all of these elements that that we've talked about that have sort of built this tolerance to fascism and this cheering on of the coup that you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation here. I, I think QAnon is is really the sort of the elite theology of Trumpism, um, mm. and uh, it's it's certainly a theology that allows. Christian nationalists who may subscribe to some portion of it or all of it, and and the numbers are really quite large. You know, one study showed uh, that I can't remember more than half of the Republican Party subscribes to the majority of QAnon's premises, and these are such outlandish premises. Um, that's really quite remarkable. I don't think there's been as broad an embrace of political conspiracy um, uh, in my lifetime. Um, but it is a theological idea built around the very terms God wins, which is one of its sort of slogans, um, that there's a great awakening, um, uh, tying it sort of to the sort of the early religious revivals in American history, and that there's a coming storm, which is, of course, a kind of a religious concept, and that, uh, that Trump is at the center of all this, um, and that it's, it, it is in the service of innocence of children who uh, are, are being you know, tortured and killed and murdered and eaten by Democrats. Um, obviously not all Christian nationalists believe in this. It's too outlandish for some. Um, but what it is, is it's the theology of Trumpism. Um, it's very, it is this kind of Gnosticism, which is to say that surfaces are not trustworthy, that political opposition is actually full on evil opposition is good and evil um, and that we can come to understand this through the study of secret knowledge um, and uh, I mean it's just been fascinating to me to watch that move into the mainstream of the Christian right and now even into the mainstream of the right wing of the Catholic Church my friend Catherine Joyce has a, a great new feature in Vanity Fair on the so-called rad trad the radical traditionalist movement within mm -hmm. the church and some figures, for instance, there's a bishop who's become, uh, um, uh, who's a great foe of Pope Francis, but has become a hero of QAnon and, a, and, and, and someone who Trump is, is tweeting out this deeply conspiratorial bishop's ideas. Um, uh, so QAnon is a sort of theology that, that, the theology of sort of secrecy, that can bring these different Christian nationalist stance in the uh, right-wing Catholicism, right-wing Mormonism as well, um, uh, various kinds of evangelicalisms, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and even prosperity gospel believers as well, and bring it into a uh, figure in which Trump has this 
central role, which is, of course, extra scriptural. That's so fascinating just in that there's the conspiratorial aspect and seeing everything as suspect as well as the secrecy playing a role because that was also something that played a role in a different kind of way with groups like the family, right? Like secrecy is, it plays a different type of role, but it's still present as part of the makeup of that organization. And that may be too much of a stretch. I'm not, <laughs> I'm curious. I, th- I think I think you're really on to something there. And I think that's actually sort of one of the convergences. So the family, mm-hmm. this this organization, I'm talking about this this old organization, they, they have one public event every year, the National Prayer Breakfast, which the mm-hmm. president attends. Um, much of Congress, world leaders, and so on. It's actually just the sort of the flagship event of a week-long sort of off-the-books lobbying festival. At one point, they considered registering as a lobbying organization, but according to their own documents, they decided not to because they could have more influence if they didn't lobby, Mm -hmm. which is absolutely true, which is why we have these laws requiring (laughs) to register. But they didn't do it. And they speak to themselves as an invisible organization. The longtime leader, Doug Coe, says the more invisible you can make your organization, the more influence it has. uh, they they sometimes call themselves Christian mafia, and of course they don't really mean themselves as the mafia, but it, it shows the metaphor, the, the way that they're thinking. They they are an elite. They're they're a political elite. Um, I don't know Senator Chuck Grassley, uh, Senator John Thune, um, uh, Senator Jim Inhofe. These are figures who've been very involved, um, and they're not interested in converting the masses. They don't care. Um, they would say, if we can get these key men and they can build God's kingdom, it doesn't really matter. The rest will fall into place, right? So what's interesting about QAnon is it's sort of, and not directly, the family and QAnon are, are, are mainly for reasons of class, economic class, at very different places. Um, uh, but they're doing the same work. And what QAnon is doing is taking that idea of, of secrecy and making it a mass movement, which is a weird thing. Secrecy is by definition a small movement. I wanna be clear, by the way, the family is not a conspiracy. Um, What they're doing is not, they have done some illegal things. What they're doing is not illegal. You are allowed to have your invisible club if you want. Um, uh, They're not a conspiracy. Um, uh, And they're not actually even invested in conspiracy theories particularly, but they are an idea of secrecy as as the central move of gaining power. Right, as uh, a vehicle, like as a vehicle that enables them. As, a, as, a, as an identity, you know? Uh, um, I remember, uh, I, I wrote two books about this group, Family and C Street, and, and uh, the street is about a, a house they have on Capitol Hill in which they provide uh, housing for a number of congressmen to live in a fellowship. Uh, and uh, 2009, it, it, sort of got, became very public when three uh, politicians associated with it all had very kind of public blow up affairs, which they tried to cover up through the C Street House. And Congressman Zach Womp, Republican from Tennessee, who was then living in the House, said the first rule of C Street is you don't talk about C Street. I mean, he, it, it was as if he, you know, he got it from that silly movie Fight Club. It's kind of a melodramatic idea. That's not a mass movement idea until QAnon comes along and says, everybody can be in on the secret. You can be an initiate into this secret knowledge. And the suckers out there, they don't understand. They just see a Trump tweet and they think he doesn't know how to capitalize. But you and I know. Um, did you see how many uh, uh, that the, the, the third letter capitalized was C? And C is the first letter in this, or the you know this number in the alphabet, uh, you know this kind of conspiratorial numerology. Um, uh, it's a way of making secrecy a mass movement of secrecy, which I think is 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 the basic con at the heart of Trumpism, right? Um, yeah, it's a it's a populism that serves the elitism, yeah, and it makes you think you're in on it. And that I mean, it's also the basic con of prosperity gospel, right? Sure. Yeah. Is, uh, you know, look at the preacher's Rolls Royce. Give him money, so that, and somehow it's going to work out for you. Don't 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 worry. I'm in on it too. Like he's got a Rolls Royce, and I gave him money, so somehow, right? God's reward me for that, and somehow that Rolls Royce is part mine too. 
in some in like a spiritual pyramid scheme. Somehow it, it gets passed along. Thank you for elaborating on that and sort of going on that tangent with me because there is that element of a shared element. Like you said, I didn't mean to conflate and say that C Street or the family are conspiratorial or that sort of thing, but that they share similar elements. And so I thank you for teasing that out with me. You were saying that. I, I actually I make that point because um you know, when I first published that book in 2008, The Family, mm-hmm. uh, uh, mainstream, my colleagues in the press said, this is crazy. This doesn't exist. It didn't matter that I wasn't the first one to write about them. The LA Times had done a massive expose. Washington Post had once too many years ago. The New Republic had many years ago. Every 10 years, someone would do an expose. And people would say, that's insane, and then move on, right? Because it didn't really fit our imagination, the secular imagination of what the Christian right was, which is a steady, sweaty guy in a too tight suit pounding his pulp, and he's got to have a Southern accent, you know, Jerry Falwell, basically, um, senior. And they didn't look like that. They didn't act like that. Um, so they couldn't be, they couldn't exist. It wasn't until, and it was, I was dismissed as saying, well, Charlotte claims it's a conspiracy. Well, I said, well, actually, no, here, here, here are the six or seven places in the book where I say, look, this is a social movement. The social movement is a neutral term. That doesn't necessarily mean civil rights movement. It can be it's a social, it's a reactionary social, social movement. It's not a conspiracy. It didn't matter. They claimed it. It wasn't until those C Street scandals when suddenly it's, you can't ignore it because politicians are coming out and saying, well, I'm a part of this thing, um, that it became real. Um, and suddenly, you know, I mean, every TV show or radio show or whatever, uh, that it sort of said, well, I don't know, I think Charlotte's conspiratorial is like, well, can you come on and, and, and talk about this? And there was a, a flurry of good reporting, good scholarship, other folks doing this, other countries looking at it, and then it subsided. So we get to 2019, we come out with a Netflix uh, documentary series uh, directed by Jesse Moss um, from uh, Jigsaw Productions. And um, uh, Again, it was just amazing. So many of the reviews said, well, uh, this this series claims there's a conspiracy. And, and except for Congressman Mark Siljander, who was actually indicted for con- crime of conspiracy and money laundering. No, we don't claim it's a conspiracy. Um, uh, but there's this interesting move in the secular press that constantly wants to fit Christian nationalism into a small box, right. a, a voter block that is identifiable, potent, but limited, and has sharp lines here. Um, and, uh, um, and you can dismiss any claims to Christian nationalism's greater reach as its own kind of conspiracy theory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think maybe Trumpism at, at least has cured the secular press of that misconception. I would hope so. Sometimes I, I still feel like I see that naivete in some outlets in their their approach to to these sorts of organizations and the democratic threat that they that they pose. But I do think that they are more aware, uh, in large part, to things like like your books and the Netflix series, as well as some of the other folks I've. I've talked to you throughout this season that have put in the work to document these things and to show the real world impact of these things and to show that it it extends far beyond the Ned Flanders to Jerry Falwell senior spectrum. <laughs> well, I I can't help but wonder too if it's not been in recent years. Um, I mean, there's always been former Christian nationalists, former conservative evangelicals who spoke about the experience, but it's, it's become something of a, a a modest movement of which you're a part yourself. Um, uh, there's a lot of folks speaking out and saying, "Yeah, you know, what these critics like Charlotte or, or others who are outside of the movement are describing—the authoritarianism implicit in this theology that they're describing—that's what I lived. That's what I experienced. Mm-hmm. And I think that is having an impact as well. Yeah, and folks take seriously. This is um, this is a real challenge. To, I think it's a threat to American democracy, but it's also more than a threat. It, it's it's a contender. 
you know, I, earlier in the show, I talked about this this right wing militia group, the Oath Keepers. The good news about the Oath Keepers is, um, like the Proud Boys, they may do some damage in, in a street here and so on. They're not a national force, right? They're not contenders. Christian nationalism is a contender. Hmm. It is an alternate alternative way of constructing uh, an America, right? Um, and it has real weight. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 a very important and very very good distinction. One of the things that I think you touched on actually on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, sort of this reflection on the prevalence of the Blue Lives Matter flag and what you deemed this type of emerging police nationalism that's sort of couched in and supported by people who actually aren't law enforcement officers in any respect, but seem to rally behind the idea of of law enforcement and law and order, which is something that Trump has said over and over and over again, the sense of law and order, even as he disobeys and breaks the law constantly. (laughs) What does that sort of role of police nationalism contribute to everything else that we've touched on and the sort of animus of the, the right here in America? I think police nationalism is a transubstantiation of white supremacy. Mm. Uh, that flag, um, the it's an American flag drained of color except for a blue stripe mm-hmm. uh, in the middle. Uh, many of its defenders say it's an old flag. No, it's not. There's a thin blue line, which is a black field with a blue stripe that is a, a much older flag. That flag uh, uh, really came into being in 2014. So the creator, Andrew, a man named Andrew Jacob, told me as a response to Black Lives Matter. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, as he put, he says, you know, they have a flag, which not really. He said, why don't the police have a flag? You know, and the answer to that is they do. It's the American flag. Um, uh, but this different flag, right? So it, it 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 comes into being, and it very quickly actually takes on, um, not an exclusively, but a real shadow of Christian nationalism. So in a lot of, and and that takes two forms, right? You see in the imagery around it, um, uh, sometimes the flag has uh, is is in the shape of a cross. Um, sometimes it has a slogan. Uh, warrior Christian, you know, American on it. Um, uh, sometimes there's a sort of a, a crusader knight with the flag. Um, and then the other popular imagery, um, which I would argue is in a way Christian nationalist as well, is uh, a skull, uh, which uh, comic book fans will recognize as a ripoff of a, a, a character called the Punisher. Punisher, yep. Punisher is a, uh, for those not familiar, uh, was a, a kind of an anti-hero who uh, in the original version was a Vietnam veteran who comes home and, you know, sort of a Rambo figure and fights crime. But unlike the other superheroes, he doesn't catch them. He just kills them. He doesn't have any superpowers. He just has a gun and a lot of anger. Um, and uh, um, so he's become a kind of a, a hero for this 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 police nationalism. And I'd argue that that skull has this kind of mortality imagery, right? Um, is also performing a religious function. Um, you know, what amazes me about Trump rally is, is just the absolute pervasiveness of death imagery, skulls, skulls, right? Sometimes comic, um, they have, a, you'll have a Punisher skull with Trump's hair on it. Um, Sometimes, uh, you know, uh, uh, someone with a shirt that's just covered with skulls and Trump, Trump, Trump. And, you know, what does this mean, right? This is, this is, this bears some more analysis. But police nationalism, um, as, and you said it right, you said the idea of law enforcement. And that's really important because it's not about actually respecting law enforcement. Um, uh, we saw that in that horrific rally in Washington, right? Where, these folks with their blue lives matters flags were fighting cops. In my book, This Brilliant Darkness, I, I, I report on one man who's uh, flying the blue lives matter flag. Um, he hates cops. He says, I hate cops, but I hate what Black Lives Matter is doing to him. He hated cops very personally and based on certain career choices, you know, which he wouldn't say on the record, right? <laughs> um, he was a violent man, very well armed. Um, uh, and um, 
a lot of swastika tattoos. Um, but that flag meant something else to him. And th that the same chat log that I'm just so fascinated by with the Oath Keepers, this right wing militia movement going public. And it's it's not just a small militia. The Oath Keepers is a national organization. Um, what I was fascinated by the conversation is we may have to kill law enforcement officers too if they get in the way of us doing justice for Trump. Um, you know, so it's sort of like we love law and order so much that we may have to kill law enforcement officers. Um, it, you know, it's that that horrific logic of the Vietnam War to save the village, we have to destroy it. Um, uh, I think it is an extension of, I mean, you can draw not a direct line, but kind of a winding line from wild at heart and those broadswords to today's embrace of, of this, um, this police nationalism. Sure. Yeah, that's why Christian Cobus Dume's book has sort of just rocked a lot of people's minds because of uh, her book, Jesus and John Wayne, really gets to the heart of that evangelical masculinity and how it's enabled many of the, definitely not the angels of our better nature, uh, <laughs> um, but it, but enabled um, over several generations, this toxic idea of what it means to be a man, of what it means to be a godly man, of all of those sorts of things that aren't always easy to articulate, but are very strong and powerful ideas and, and models of behavior. I suppose where I'd like to end is with, with a relatively broad, open-ended question for you, which is really, where do you think we go from this point forward? Trump has lost. He knows he's lost, even if he doesn't want to admit it. He's attempting a coup. All of these things are true. And at the same time, just today, Catherine Stewart, um, who wrote the book, The Power Worshippers, had an op-ed in the New York Times about how religious authoritarianism is here to stay, even beyond Trump. How will you sort of see these elements of American society continue to evolve? And what do you think are ways in which we can respond to it? Or I'm not even sure like how to phrase that part of the question, whether to say how to respond to it or even how to frame it in roles as like for yourself as a journalist and a writer. How do, how do you think you're going to begin to continue to write about these things and, and try to contextualize things for people moving forward? I mean, I think my job as a journalist is to pay attention to the surfaces. And that seems counterintuitive, right? The surface is obvious. They're not, unfortunately. I mean, this is the ways in which the secular press has sort of ignored the surfaces of Trumpism. Uh, and that extends from, you know, as reported in that Vanity Fair piece, at Trump rallies, a centerpiece of the rally would be a long and kind of grotesque, pornographic, violent horror movie slasher film description of undocumented people, animals in Trump's language, you know, and they're climbing through windows and they're raping women and but they're doing more. They're chopping off heads. Sometimes they're carving out hearts. They're decapitating people. And he would, you know, he could spend, he could go on like this for about 20 minutes. Um, never got reported. Never got reported. Um, same thing in 2016. I think I was the first person to report that Trump at his rallies was regularly telling this long, elaborate, fictitious story about a general in, uh, in Americans and Philippines who uh, captured 50 Muslim rebels and had 50 bullets dipped in pig's blood and then executed 49 of them and gave the last one uh, and said, take this to your people. And Trump said, that's how I'm gonna, that's how I'm gonna govern. And this, I, the political press would say, this is just outlandish. The political press has got to stop looking at religious authoritarianism according to the terms that make sense to secular liberalism. And we constantly look for the policy wins, right? Piece in the New York Review of Books uh, just last week saying, when you look at it, Trump really didn't do that much in policy. Well, hell no, he didn't. That wasn't the point. I mean, in fact, he just did damage throughout the government all sorts of, in all sorts of other ways. But, uh, we can take that, that conservative notion, ideas have consequences. You've seen that with Trumpism. 
we've seen the, the consequences of these horrendous ideas. So my job as a journalist is to keep paying attention to those services, pay attention to what Trump says. Um, uh, everyone's like, what, what is Trump up to? What is, what is his game here? Well, it's what he says. It's staying in power. He wants to hold on to power. I know this because he says it. Yes, he lies. He doesn't lie much about what he wants. He's quite candid about his grotesque ambitions. We just have to listen. Um, that's my role as a journalist. What we do as a nation is kind of above my pay grade. Uh, <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> I, I really, I wish I knew. I mean, right now we see what the Biden campaign has decided to do, which is, you know, uh, let's let's fake it till we make it. Let's pretend to be normal. Things are 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 going to transition normally, and just hope that the, the sort of that power of uh, normalcy. Maybe they're right. Um, I take some heart from saying that they're not just doing that out of nowhere, as I understand from a colleague. There are folks in the Biden campaign who are looking at parallel situations from other nations. They're looking at you know authoritarianism in Serbia and saying, well, what, what are methods that have worked and worked peacefully? So maybe that's right. Or maybe it's a time for us all to be in the streets. Maybe it's a time for civil disobedience last week. Uh, an acquaintance of mine from up here in Vermont, Martha Hennessy, uh, uh, was uh, sentenced to a year in jail by a Trump judge. Um, she is a granddaughter of the great uh, Catholic worker activist, a social justice activist, Dorothy Day, and sort of channeled her grandmother's spirit by breaking in with a group of people, uh, including one of the Berrigans, also a great Catholic social justice activist, into a, uh, a submarine base and throwing fake blood, you know, this symbolic that, right? Uh, swords into plowshares. And when I was a younger person, I always thought, oh God, this symbolic act, you know, what does it mean? That's not real power, right? I have such greater respect for it now, right? When we're confronted with the scale of religious authoritarianism, keeping that narrative thread alive, that narrative thread of resistance alive, and that's coming from a religious place. I'm not a religious person. But I love that. I love that storytelling. I love the storytelling that. I love the courage. Uh, this is she, uh, Martha Hennessy is an older woman. She's going to prison for a year, uh, which is a long sentence. For and we've seen you know people toppling statues facing ten-year prison sentences and so on. That may be the courage that's called for from some of us. Well, I'm a journalist, so I'm going to stick to telling stories. Yeah. I'm thankful that you're you're telling the stories that you are and that you're bringing your particular lens to all of these events over the last four years and and going back to your time in in writing the books, illustrating and detailing things relative to the family and other things that you've done. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today and talking through some of these things with me. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Where can people find you online? Where can they find any anything else you might want to mention here at the end? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me, Blake, and thanks for doing the show. And uh, as you mentioned, we, we both probably spend too much time on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, <laughs> um, uh, I'll give a plug for my new book, just published at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, This Brilliant Darkness, which is, um, that's my version of a hopeful book. Uh, it's not as directly on these subjects, mm -hmm. not as unrelated as you might think. Um, and uh, it was my attempt to find uh, no cheap grace. It's, it's, it's a dark hope, but, uh, I think even that can sustain us. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a dark time and it's sort of a, and what can be a very cruel country. So we'll take any hope that we can. So thank you for writing that. And thank you for joining me and talking through these issues with me today. Thanks, Blake. That'll do it for this episode. This episode was produced by Jake Lewis. The theme music is by Dave Lefevre and Jake Lewis. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and let others know about the show. Talk to you soon. 
1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.